Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Could you put that slide up uh, on 2 Samuel 13? In the words of the young people, this is a gnarly chapter tonight. It's really sad to see some of the things that people who profess to be God's people actually do. Everyone, the remarkable thing is that everyone in chapter 13 professes that they belong to God. Because after all, they are members of the nation Israel. They're all Israelites. And in this case, the characters in this chapter are members of King David's family. Two of his sons, a nephew, and his daughter. Now, supposedly... All of these people that are in the chapter believed and lived by God's commandments, which were given to Moses. I'd like to just read you a couple of those commandments that they supposedly lived by. It's in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law. It says in verses 1 through 3, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And then in verses 13 and 14, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and other commandments like these. Now, in the face of commandments like these that they knew well, they still committed terrible sins. Please take a look at the slide. In verses 1 and 2, you see the lust of David's son Ammon. And lust, Amnon, I should say, and lust... Not just for any woman, but for his own sister. And then you see the deceit of his cousin, Jonadab. And then you see the rape of Tamar by Amnon in verses 6 through 14. And then we see after he rapes his stepsister, not his stepsister, but his half-sister. After he rapes her, the lust that he said, or the love that he had for her, turns into hatred. And it really wasn't love, it must have been lust. And then in verses 18 to 20, you see Tamar's grief and shame. In verse 21, King David's failure about this whole scene. And then Absalom's revenge. Absalom was uh, another brother, and he was the brother of Tamar. We see his revenge in verses 20 through to 29. And then in verses 30 through 39, sin's aftermath, the results of these sins. You know, if you read the Bible on any regular basis at all, you know that God does not hide the sins of his people. He allows them to everyone to be recorded. So they're all there recorded for everybody to see. Some of the most grievous sins are committed by men and women who are leaders in the household of faith. And that's why I titled this chapter tonight, Sin in the House of God. Some of the people that come to mind, leaders who sin grievous sins, are Samson, David, and Solomon, and there are others. In our text tonight, we're going to witness a number of particularly heinous sins. Sins that are despicable. Sins that you hate to even think about. These sins are committed by David's children against each other. Before we look at the text, let's look back at the prophecy delivered to David by Nathan the prophet. Turn over back one chapter to chapter 12. And let's put in at verse 9. 
Pastor Bill brought this last week. Verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Nathan speaking to David, King David. To do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now in our chapter this evening, this prophecy comes to pass. We see adversity coming to David's house in the form of grievous sins committed by two of his sons, Absalom and Abnon. Now the sins that we see that you saw outlined on the slide are lust, deceit, rape, incest, hatred, anguish, murder, and grief. Now, why has God, our holy God, chosen to include these terrible sins in the Bible? I think the Bible gives us the answer. In Romans 15, verse 4, it says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. What can we learn from these terrible sins? Well, let's think about Amnon first of all. Look at verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now, why was it improper for a brother to have relations with his sister simply because God said so in Leviticus 18 verse 11 it says the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter begotten by your father she is your sister you shall not uncover her nakedness and that's exactly what uh, Amnon wanted to do with Tamar now it says Tamar was a lovely woman it says David uh, Absalom had a lovely sister now, evidently, she was a very beautiful young woman. The verse says she was lovely. Now, this word lovely is the same word that Abraham used to describe his wife, Sarah. In Genesis twelve eleven, it says, And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. And that's the same Hebrew word as the word used for lovely here in this text. Now, Tamar was beautiful to look at. But evidently, she also had an inner beauty, as we will see later in our text tonight. I'd like to say a word to our sisters in the congregation about inner beauty. In time, outward beauty will fade away. Inner beauty can become better as time passes. This is the only beauty that's precious in the sight of God, the inner beauty. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, our text says that Amnon, the son of David, loved Tamar. I think it's very clear that his love was really lust. He was so distressed over his sister that he became sick. 
how could this man of Israel, born in a king's house, how could he even think of doing something like lusting after his own sister? He knew the commandment, but he willfully gave in to his desire. You might ask yourself, how is it that a Christian person, a godly person, gives in to desire? The Bible answers that for us in several places. One of those places is James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. In Romans 1, beginning at verse 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, and so on. Now, Amnon used deceit to take advantage of his sister. I think she had real scruples about living a godly life because he had to deceive her in order to lie with her. This brings in another relative, a relative by the name of Jonadab, who was a cousin uh, of uh, Absalom and Amnon. He was David's brother's son, Jonadab. And look at verse 3. But Ammon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Now, with a friend like this, you don't need any enemies. He was the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. This is another way of saying deceitful man. And he said to him, he said to Amnon, Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. Can you hear the devil? And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Now, instead of Amnon, instead of uh, Jonadab saying this to Amnon, what should he have said as a believer in Israel in those day, days? Here's what he should have said. He should have said, It is a sin to lust after any woman that you're not married to. God has forbidden you to desire any woman who is not your wife. You cannot have your sister. It is a sin even if you were to marry her. The commandment God gave to Moses is very clear, and I read that, that already. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. And then in verses 6 through 14, we see him carry out this terrible plot. Verse 6. And Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and pardon me, make a couple of cakes for me in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Now, what was David was David out to lunch when she sang this to her to to David? That I may eat from her hand when he was saying that. So David sent home to Tamar saying, Now go to your brother. Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him. But he refused to eat 
Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. What a rascal. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. This is why I believe she was a woman of virtue. And I, where should I, could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. I'm not certain what she meant by that. Now, that may have been a way for her to stall and not let this happen. I'm not sure. But in any case, she wanted to appeal to the king. Now, however, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Now let's take a look at Amnon's heart. In verse 15, we see that this quote-unquote love that he said he had for her was really lust. Because this lust turns into hatred. Look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise and be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed, the evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he pulled his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. What an unconscionable wretch he was. And then in verse 18, we see Tamar's grief and her shame. Look at verse 18. Now she had on a robe of many colors... For the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, he was more aware of something was happening than David was. I find it pretty amazing. But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. What a sad picture. I thought to myself as I was preparing this message, you know, I know it won't be necessary, but it still went through my mind. As I thought about her, this lovely young woman, being violated by her own brother, trying to get out of it but failing in doing so, and then suffering this shame, and then living by herself, evidently, or at least not, not being able to be married, living in Absence House, desolate. And I thought, you know, I'm sure I will see her in heaven someday. And I think I'd like to go up to her and tell her how sorry I was, what she went through. But I don't think I'll have to. I think she'll be happy as it is. But it still was an emotion that I went through when I read this passage. Now in verse 21, we see David's failure. King David's failure. Verse 21, but when David heard all these things, he was very angry. Now, we don't know if he did anything about it. Evidently, he didn't because it's not recorded. It seems to me that he must not have done anything because it just says he was angry. Now, what you and I have done is read through one of the saddest accounts in one of the saddest periods of Israel's history. It should have been much different. After all, this was during the time of Israel's greatest king, 
the man after God's own heart. These grievous acts were committed by David's sons. How is this possible? There's a man by the name of Matthew Henry that wrote quite a commentary. It's very long, very involved. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of England, said before any pastor undertakes to be a pastor in a church, he should read every volume, every word of all of Matthew Henry's commentaries, and then he'll be more equipped to teach God's people. Let me read you what Matthew Henry said about this section. He said, we have here a particular account of the abominable wickedness of Amnon in ravishing his sister, a subject not fit to be enlarged upon, nor indeed to be mentioned without blushing, that ever any man should be so vile, especially that a son of David should be so. Amnon's character, we have reason to think, was bad in other things. If he had not forsaken God, he would never have given up, would, he would never have been given up to these vile affections. Godly parents have often been afflicted with wicked children. Grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. What about our country today? What about the United States of America? What about Santa Cruz County? I want to submit some ideas to you this evening as we think about this passage. Modern America is very much like Absalom's lustful brother, Amnon. Lust is a major issue in our society today. Men lusting after women, women lusting after men, men lusting after men, women lusting after women. You can't turn on a TV program, even if you think it's a good one, then along will come a commercial that will talk about lust and create those ideas. It's hard to go to a movie that doesn't have it. How about magazines? You know, when you go into the average checkout stand today, you have to cover your eyes and guard your heart or you're going to see something that's going to cause you to sin. There's an amazing amount of sexual sin in the church today. Pastors and people in the pews across America. All you have to do is look on the web and read Facebook and see the exchange between people who profess to be Christians today. I was looking on the internet, I do that cautiously these days, but I was looking under Google for the news, looking for the headlines. And one of the headlines said, Johnny Depp, the sexiest man alive. I thought that's exactly what I needed to read. <laughs> now, when you think about it, the major problem with America today is not in Washington, D.C. It is in the lifestyles of the people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible is replete with this idea. The health and prosperity of any nation is dependent not on its elected leaders, but on how God's people live. When Solomon finished building the magnificent temple in Jerusalem, God spoke very clearly to his people. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In verse 11, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Now what about Jesus? When Jesus started his public ministry, he was introduced to Israel by John the Baptist. Now let me ask you this. Let's just say that someone... 2,000 years ago, you were alive 2,000 years ago, and ask you to introduce Jesus to the nation Israel, what would your introduction have been like? Well, what did the Holy Spirit say through the mouth of John the Baptist? It says in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what about when Jesus began his public ministry? What were his first words to the nation Israel? It says in Matthew 4, verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, years after Jesus went back to heaven, he spoke to John on the Isle of Patmos, and he said, write these words. And to the, some of these words are found in uh, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 5. He said to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and do the first repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus said, I am the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I'm the one who walks amongst the churches. He's still doing that today. He's walking in our church today. And he's saying, I have this against you that you've left your first love. And then Paul wrote to Timothy before that. He said in chapter 3, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then in Hebrews 10, verse 21 through 25, it says, Having a, a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then Peter said in 1 Peter 4, The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Some of you have been attending the Truth Project on Monday evening and uh, on Tuesday morning. And you've been learning a lot about the revisionist history in this country. 
There are people in our universities uh, in many of our schools, both secondary and high school and so on, who say that our country was not founded on by the Pilgrim Fathers on faith and belief in God and in the scriptures. They say it's just not true. Well, it is true, and you can prove it over and over. And we talked about this last uh, yesterday. We talked about when Abraham Lincoln started the first Thanksgiving in 1863. And we, we have handouts after the meeting which give you that address, uh, copies of that address. But I'd like to read it for you, if I may. This was his Thanksgiving proclamation in 1863. And what I'd like to propose to each of us is as you gather at Thanksgiving in a few days, that you take this handout, which is a copy of exactly what he said, and that you, before you pray and have a good time with your families and your loved ones, read what he said. I'm going to read it now. Abraham Lincoln said, It is the duty of nations, as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. We know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to God who made us. It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole people of the American shore from shore to shore, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and to those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens. Signed, Abraham Lincoln, October 3rd, 1863. It's not Washington that's the problem of our country. It's us. We are God's people. And if God's people will get serious about being godly, God will bless our land again. We won't have to worry about recessions and all kind of things like that if we serve God the way we're supposed to. Why don't we give ourselves to some time of prayer tonight?
I'm letting out kind of early so you have time to pray together. Let, can we gather in groups of two, three, or four and just spend a little bit of time in prayer? Let's do that. Nobody of mind if you sidle up close to them and pray with them.